Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you along again today. I'm Bern Henson, your co-host. Before we get into things, I want to remind you, usually I sit at the end, so I want to say it at the front end, if you have a story you'd like to tell, you can always contact us through email at betweenthelines@virtualacademy.com. Go to our website at betweenthelines@virtualacademy.com. You can contact us there as well. Love to hear from you. We've gone over a lot of subjects on this podcast. The one area that we really haven't gotten into is corrections, but we're going to rectify that today with our, our guest on today's podcast. But before we bring him in, we bring in our host, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I'm great, and I'm excited about today. Uh, I, I will admit that I'm a little bit uh, anxious about it, to be honest with you. A little, just a little bit. Just like when we had uh, Victor Laurie on a couple of weeks ago, you have a, a backstory, back history with today's guest, so you don't want anything to slip out, I'm assuming. I do. We have connections. Connections are both good and bad. And, and so, yeah. uh, again, uh, I, I'm willing to play nice if our guest willing to uh, play nice. So what, what can you tell him about? Tell us about him today. Our guest today has 35 years of experience working for the Michigan Department of Corrections. He has worked as a corrections officer, a parole officer, probation officer for the 38th Circuit Court. Currently, he's an assistant professor in the Criminal Justice Department at Madonna University up in Michigan and also serves on the school's Criminal Justice Advisory Board. Please welcome Mr. Robert Greenwood to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Doing very good. It's pretty hot here in Michigan. We call it hot here, <laughs> 85. Uh, but... We have the humidity that goes along with it. So other than that, enjoying my time in the summer, and we're getting ready to actually start the semester next week. So we're just um, on the last, um, you know, just tying things up for the, for the semester for our criminal justice students come back on campus on Monday. And I want to point out to our listeners, Bob, that, that you're not only a professor, but you're also a student because uh, you're, you actually have gone back to school again. And so where, where are you at in that study program there? Well, yeah, I definitely fit the mold for adult learners. <laughs> um, I, and my wife keeps reminding me, why in the heck do you keep doing this to, to yourself and me? <laughs> and so with that, um, when I went back to Madonna, um, I had a master's degree at Western Michigan University in public administration. However, um, came back here and I was thinking, you know, I don't really know that much about higher education. And so I started looking at some programs here at Madonna. And one of the good things about Madonna is full-time faculty can go to school here for, uh, uh, you know, under the employee tuition waiver. So I took advantage of that and I went back two years ago and just completed my second master's in higher education administration. And actually next week I'm starting the EDD program, the doctorate program in education and leadership. Um, the program requires two master's degrees. Don't ask me why. So I just got done completing again the Mahia degree, what it's called. And I'm going to be starting two really tough classes uh, next semester. Actually, I'm going with another cohort. So it's going to be uh, statistics. Oh, oh statistics. <laughs> By way of review, here's what I learned in my, my master's level statistics class. You can make numbers say whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> there you go. You can manipulate them. Right. Absolutely. So can you guys, uh, we have, they're called quantitative yes. and qualitative. Um, I like the, you know, I don't, I don't really know much about, you know, just from my under, from my graduate degree, but what it sounds like, um, you, you have to know how to put together 
numbers and let them speak. So uh, um, it makes sense for me to do um, my doctorate uh, thesis in my area, which is correction. So I'm still putting together my thesis statement, but I want to do something along the lines of, and I have a, a, a deep understanding care for staff that currently still work in the prisons and the jails. And I want to look at staff assaults and how that's a relationship to the mentally ill, because we all know our facilities is full of mentally ill uh, prisoners that you know just couldn't make it for one reason or not in our community. So they're put there in the prison system, and then staff are there are uh, working with them every day. But however, the bad turn sometimes you might have a great relationship with them, then the next thing you know, they're given you know you're getting sucker punched. So that I have a dear. Um, like I said, I, I really have respect for the men and women that work in the prisons, and, and I think that would be something worthwhile. It's something that means a lot to me. Well, I would agree. So so let, let's go ahead and start our episode uh, kind of the way that we start uh, most of ours here, because I love, I love hearing these stories. What was it that led you to a career in corrections? I'm, I'm dating myself now. Back in when I graduated from high school in 81, uh, the job market was not that good. It was uh, it was actually it was just coming back from a recession. Things were not good. So what I did was I took civil service tests for I wanted to be a police officer and, or get my foot in the door as a correction officer and um, took the civil service test and got the opportunity of, of um, they called me for an interview at Heron Valley Men's Facility that has been closed down since then when I worked there, but that's in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, that's in the Southern part of the state and it was a maximum security prison. So I went for the interview. Um, it was very funny. The interview, they only asked me a few questions. It was a deputy warden and a human resource director. I'll never forget that day. The, the questions, they only asked like four or five questions. Can you fight? <laughs> Can you work overtime? <laughs> Have you seen uh, bad injuries before? You got the question five. You got that far after yeah. the first two. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yes, yes, and yes. And I was, believe I was just 20 years old. I just turned, actually, I was 19 and turned 20 when I started the academy. So I checked all their boxes, I guess, and uh, got lucky and got a position then started the training academy and that's for 16 weeks before you actually have to hit down in the prison system. So, so would it be safe to say then that, that working in corrections wasn't some lifelong burning desire uh, that you had? Absolutely not. I didn't even really know about corrections. Only, only how I knew about it when I used to, uh, I had a friend that lived by the Milan prison. I mean, he was right next to the perimeter. And then I know, and when I stayed there at night, I was like, dang, that looks pretty scary over there. I got all the lights on and I can hear people yelling and screaming. That was my only exposure to prison. Like I said, there, that was a Milan prison. That's only about, from here in Valley Mint, it's only about, I'd say, less than three or four miles. So I, that's the most I didn't have any discussion. Like I said, I was looking for a law enforcement career more in police, but it was very hard to get at that time. And I chose, uh, like I said, I chose that direction to start off in corrections. And then 35 years later, I retired from there. Well, you know, it seems like it worked out pretty well for you, but you get the job. You get the job offer because you beat the you meet the basic requirements. Uh, yes, I can fight uh, uh, overtime. Yes, hey, what, t- tell me real quick, uh, how was the pay? How was the pay back way back then? Back then, I started at seven thirty six an hour. 
Um, I thought actually I was doing good because minimum wage, I believe, was $3.35. So I was making double that. And then when they start talking about overtime, uh, we got pre-shift as well. So I was um, getting 41 hours a week right off the bat. And then overtime, it was much overtime as you wanted, literally. And then um, just like in, in law enforcement, we're uh, forced to work mandatory overtime as well, which happened to me when I first started, I'd say two or three times a week. And that would be you're just when someone called in sick or say you have to have more staffing, you have uh, critical incidents where people are at the hospital. We have to have two uh, people sitting on them at the hospital. Uh, and so that would create overtime. Um, again, you'd work the whole, the whole second shift that you got a mandatory to. It wasn't like a split shift, 12 hours. So you'd work your eight hours and get mandatory or volunteer. You'd work another eight hours. And then you just go back to work on the red eye. So, so money's pretty good. Oh, it can be as good as you want. Yep, you can get as much <laughs> money as you want in that kind, in that in, in that um, environment. Um, overtime's here at all the prisons. It's not going to stop. But then again, we might talk about this later. There is staff burnout phase too. Oh, as well. absolutely. That's absolutely. Not, yeah, that's not um, you know conducive to having a great environment to work at and and doing what we get paid for to rehabilitate the prisoners. Well, let, let me ask you this. You get through the academy, perhaps it's different now, but how did they decide what, what institution you were going to be assigned to? Did you choose? No. Um, you would think wherever you live at that they would put you, but not necessarily. Like my class started with 35 at our facility. 35, don't, it might not sound like a lot, but it was a lot back in, in 1984 when I started. And what it was is, we, they needed a lot of officers at that facility. It was a maximum secure facility. They had a lot of critical incidents. They had a lot of staff burnout. So they put a big chunk of us that in that hiring pool to 35, again, for the academy. Um, the academy um, was at the location. So actually, we did all of our training right across the street in an old building. It was an old house converted to a training building. It worked out great. Um I was right across the street. So when we did our on-the-job training, we could just basically just report across the street and do on-the-job training. Uh, so that's what it consisted of. Now in 1985, they created the Officer Training Academy that I'll talk a little bit um, later on. But in 1984, they it was uh, you just did your training at the site that you were hired for. I, I just want to point this out for our listeners. We've seen a common theme uh, throughout our podcast how it seems that uh, in the first responder profession, our youngest people, the ones that have the least amount of experience and knowledge and skills, are often placed in the shifts and locations where it's really beneficial to have a lot of experience and knowledge and skills. You know, we're working a maximum security prison right out, right out of the gate just seems counterintuitive. You know, it seems like let's start off a little slower with this thing. Right. I'd like maybe a camp or a level one. (laughs) What it is, is, let me back up the uh, security levels. It's a good, it's what it is. A prison goes by security levels. Um, It goes from the camp level, which there's not very many left um, up to, level five level five being the highest we did have level six with supermax but for budgeting reasons they eliminated um level six but we still have level six prisoners by code the classification system classifies them 
to the level. And that's what the, it's about the, like the risk that they have. So if they've got a high uh, risk of escape, they're going to go up higher. And also their crime. So what they do is they are signed at RGNC. When they go through RGNC at the Jackson prison, they're classified to what level? Back when I started in 84, we only had a few maximum security prisons. One up in the UP, Marquette Branch Prison, Jackson Prison. Part of it was a maximum security in Heron Valley Men's. So those were the three um, prisons that were designated maximum security. And like Mike was alluding to, um, it's not maybe conducive when you start off as a new correction officer going right, you're just being thrown right to the fire, so to speak. Uh, these prisoners are savvy. They're in there for a reason for Max. They could have, they could be assaultive. They could be, uh, like I said, escape risk. Um, there are a lot more that comes to it that you have to do and make sure that you uh, cross all your T's and dot your I's when you're uh, supervising them. So you get assigned to, to a, a maximum security prison right off the bat. Uh, do you happen to remember anything about your first shift? First shift. My, my yes, I believe, yes, I. it, it seemed like it just happened yesterday, Matt. But, uh, the first day I was on duty in the housing unit, too, I remember there was a stabbing. Just happened right in front of me. I was like, I never seen no one bleeding, like, you know, <laughs> except for when I went deer hunting or something, you know, you're going to see what you have to do the field dressing. But however, I was like, that really woke me up. I was thinking the first thing I thought, man, they don't pay me enough for this, man. <laughs> that, that knife could have easily been put on me. I didn't see where it happened. All I did was see the guy stabbed. And then the next thing you know, we're, we're doing what, we, what we're trained to do. Um, take the person under control, get the weapon, of course, then get the person medical first aid, which we had a, um, a really good site on on our we had an infirmary it looked like a regular hospital so we could do emergency service until the ambulance got there where it saved a lot of prisoners life actually but i remember like um like i said earlier the first day on the job i got exposed okay this is what can happen in maximum security prison every day <laughs> hey well brent i just want to point something out to you i don't know if you caught it there uh but i think we just had an admission on a, on a recording that, that Bob may have lied during his interview. Can you fight? And, and have yep. you seen a significant injury? Uh, yes. I guess they should have clarified. Have you seen a significant injury on a person, not a deal? On a, there you go. There on a person. Have you seen someone? He's talking about things that are happening every day to him. I'm thinking about what happens during my daily life working from home. It's nothing compared to what he's seeing, you know? <laughs> Paper cut. Paper <laughs> cut. Oh, no. yeah. Or like you see this, you, back in our days, Kids didn't carry, you know, some nice, but no guns, of course, but they'd be just fist fights, you know. And uh, of course, I seen that, and I'm not going to lie, I was in some fist fights myself in high school. <laughs> well, it was on the um, job application. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You wouldn't have been qualified otherwise. I, I didn't lie on that one. I told the truth. I, I've been suspended from school a few times. I wasn't, you know, I was a good student, but I wasn't uh, always, you know, I stuck up for myself maybe a little bit too much. I should have maybe thought about talking it out. However, lessons learned, right? <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully none of the students are outside your door listening right now to your oh, recording. No. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. We've talked before uh, on this program about uh, uh, initial training and how important initial training is. That, and when I talk about initial training, I'm talking about that training that takes place immediately after the basic academy. Okay. And right when you start the job, how was your, your initial training, your on-the-job training for you? What was your experience with that? 
Oh, I had an excellent, I thought it was well put together. Um, it was in different modules they put together. For instance, we'd learn all about the, the classification system I spoke about earlier. We'd learn why a prisoner would go to maximum security or minimum security or medium. Back when I started, we had close security. So it went me, minimum, medium, close, and max. But the, the, you know, those were the security levels. So we'd learn why they was placed on that and then how much more supervision would have to give, of course, when someone moves up higher in security level. Uh, we had all different classes, anatomy of a setup. That would be, we knew the, the uh, trainers would let us know what's going to happen to you. And then what I'm talking about is the prisoners, when you come there, sometimes they're trying to manipulate you, get things that you're not supposed to do. Uh, they're trying to get into your head. They're trying to see how far they could go with you. So they were letting us know before we touched down on our assignments, you're going to be getting these questions. There's going to be a reason. So you got to keep it real. You got to keep it professional at all times. And then we just went through the different module training. And then uh, we had the physical uh, fitness part. We had the hands-on where we would do physical. Uh, we did, Back then, we uh, used the keto. I don't know if any of you guys know about a keto. They don't really probably use it anymore. But it's more defensive tactic. We're using their energy against them. That would be the number one thing. Like if we were trained, if uh, someone does have a knife coming at us, you just don't hightail and run. You um, Well, you can if you can, but most of the time you can in prison. You have to be able to uh, call that off and get under well, control. Well, it's interesting that, that, that you bring that up. And, and for, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, unlike police officers, uh, corrections officers for the most part are unarmed. So, so when you when you first started the job, what, what what did you carry on your duty belt? Well, duty belt was a pair of handcuffs, a pair of keys, a set of keys, whatever unit you was working at, or the yard keys. Um, and um, later on, we was carrying like more first aid stuff, like masks. But for the most part, when I started in '84, we just had two things: we had a pair of handcuffs, and we had a set of keys to get us where we needed to go. That's it. I find that to be because I, I, I didn't work the correction side. Mm -hmm. I, I find that to be just mind boggling that, that you're, you're literally in there with nothing but you. And yes. how, how, would, how would you, how would you describe the, the, the inmate to correctional officer ratio? Well, what, what, what did that look like? Well, I can give you some numbers. Um, when I worked at, again at Heron Valley men's, in a housing unit, there'd be, before they double bumped, so there was 80 prisoners to a cell block, and there was two correction officers. When I worked at the Jackson prison, I worked in eight block, there was 500 prisoners to five correction officers. So you can see the numbers. You're always, I'll number probably 100 to one, I'd say, if I had to put, it's close to that anyways. Well, Bob, for your, your upcoming statistics class, <laughs> I just want to point out that those are not good numbers. Okay. No. <laughs> you know, th 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 those are casino type numbers. That's why the casinos make so much money because that's the kind of odds that they have. But I, I want to share a story with you if I couldn't. I want to get your reaction to it. Uh, a couple years I was teaching a de-escalation class uh, down in Orlando, Florida, and there happened to be a correctional officer that was attending the class. And as part of this class, they have to do a teach back. And, and I, I can remember it as vividly right now as it was that day. This this guy gets up there and he's the only corrections officer in our little group uh, with a bunch of police officers. And he gets up there and he goes, I want to start this section off with this thing right here. 
sometimes you and uh, policing have to go to the bad neighborhoods. Sometimes you have to respond on calls there. You have to patrol there, whatever the case is. He goes, what you fail to realize is that in corrections, he goes, I'm always in the bad neighborhood. And I, I, I live in the bad neighborhood. Would you describe that as a, an accurate reflection of what it's like to work in the correctional field? Absolutely. Um, like I said, um, if you talk to police officers, which I have friends that are police officers or work in the federal agencies, and we both have mutual respect for each other, the, the you know, different fields of criminal justice. However, you're right. Um, everybody comes from the county jails first. In most cases, they're up there. They're doing either nine months to 12 months already because uh, they're going through the sentencing phase, which takes a while on the more serious crime. So once they touch down at the state prison level, uh, they already got attitudes formed. They already had the mentality us against them. Um, they're coming into it. Um, they don't respect us for the most part. Um, when they're coming in, they're, you got you got to get in their minds too. What they're they're coming into the jungle as well. Um, they're going to be preyed upon. They're going to uh, as soon as they touch down. I mean, I've seen guys. Um, I got my first lesson when I worked at the Jackson Prison. Um, again, it's five galleries, showers on base, and I, I I'll never forget. I seen this white guy running butt naked out of the shower. So you can only imagine what he was running away from. Um, so if we in that kind of environment, they don't really prepare you. They can prepare you in training, but until you get in there and see the environment, the negativity that goes on for the most part, um, the attitudes, and then I'm gonna I'll touch a little bit a little bit later on about the gangs too, because that's really big. We have a security threat group in Department of Correction that's that that overlooks that, but that's a really huge huge component of um, the prison system as well with all the different things that happen. Uh, you know, you know, the gangs originated from the prison system. They get out, they parole out to the communities. However, in the prison system that keeps going on, uh, the gangs get strong and when someone leaves a lot of time and not in some cases, uh, the gang leaders are in prison and are still making calls out to the community. The ring bosses, the, the drug lords, whoever you want to call them are still making the, uh, you know, the decisions that they're coming from prison. So you can imagine that type of environment when you go into it, that what, you know, what you have to bring every day to be alert. Um, you have to be um, rehabilitative in mind. You have to watch, you know, so to speak, watch your back, watch your partner's back and always be prepared um, that, that what could happen. And that could be, it could be your last day on this earth, just like in a law enforcement uh, world. So from the time you started in the mid-80s until the time you retired, did you see the environment get better, worse, or stay about the same? And what do you attribute that to? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, I would, it has peaks, ups and downs. Um, it goes in cycles, but for the most part, it pretty much stayed the same, in my opinion. The thing that the Department of Corrections really uh, worked on over the last 10 to 15 years was rehabilitation. And I think that's uh, it's a step in the right direction. And what I want to say is they're doing a lot of job stuff inside the prisons. One thing could be you guys would never think that, and, you know, the normal person would think that a prisoner could take a school book and turn to a Braille for someone that can't see, turn to a Braille book. They have that services at the at the Cotton Correct facility in Jackson, Michigan. Uh, so it kind of keeps their, it does keep their mind off how to get, 
sort of one up on the correction officers keeps their mind where, you know, they're working a regular job like us. They're, they're tired, you know, at night. They just want to go to dinner and lay down, relax, and get ready for their next job. So Department of Corrections has done an um, outstanding job of doing rehabilitation measures. As far as the violence, I think that goes in cycles. We're always going to have it. And again, that can be attributed to the gangs or just uh, people not agreeing. For instance, they started double bunking in uh, more in the 90s now. So you imagine if you have a bunkie with Colin, so you're always with that person, right? So you can have disagreements, you, you know, fallouts, and then you're locked in that cell with them for the, for, you know, for the most part, most of the day and all night. So that's something that with the budget we had to, uh, Department of Corrections had to go for and uh, with, you know, they're in the business of trying to save the state money, the taxpayers money. When uh, back in the 90s, when the prison uh, boom was on, incarceration, we had over 46 prisons around that one. Now we're down in the 30s. So what they're doing is streamlining services and uh, saving the taxpayers money by, if applicable, closing prisons, which has happened quite a bit uh, recently, over the last 10 years, actually. Just to get off topic here just a little bit. But I was in Florida uh, for a, a class uh, about a year or so ago, and, and I was told that the state of Florida is actually closing down prisons, not because they don't have enough prisoners to fill it, but because they don't have enough COs to work it. So they're having to consolidate these institutions, not because they want to, but because they have to. But that makes it more dangerous, not only for the correctional officers, but also for the inmates, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. And um for the most part, uh, Department of Corrections does an outstanding job of recruiting. Also, they have a really strong union, and the union was a place when I started in 1984. It's a Michigan Corrections Organization. You know, take a look at that. They have a lot of good stuff on that website, a lot of benefits for their employees. And the bottom line is they're trying to uh, create a, a good working environment in a prison setting so their membership can have a successful career hopefully. And uh, they, like, again, they have a lot of different benefits, a lot of different resources on there. If, for instance, if something would happen, you know, disciplinary reason why the union would uh, go fight and they have um, attorneys on their staff that deal with uh, matters of that matter. If they have to take it to an arbitrator, they take it to, to civil service uh, for it. So they really fight for their members and make sure that their, their uh, needs are being met. I want to preface this next part by uh, the disclaimer that my only real experience with this next question comes from watching Shawshank Redemption. Okay. When somebody makes that transition, uh, they're transferred from the county jail and and they're coming into the prison system. What is that experience like for, for the inmate? I care about the correctional officers. Don't get me wrong, but the inmate experience has impact on the correctional officer. That initial transition, what does that look like for those folks? Again, uh, a lot of our prisoners go through reception guiding center in Jackson. As Mike said, they're coming from the county jails. They've been already sentenced by the court. So they know what their sentences are just transitioning from the county jails to a state correctional facility. They get processed there for six weeks on the average. And what they're doing is they're being interviewed by clinicians, they're being interviewed by nursing staff. What are their needs? What prison fits them the best for rehabilitation, for what service they need? For instance, if they have geriatric needs or they have medical needs, we have prisons in the state of Michigan that deals with, they even have elevators in some of the house units to deal with people that maybe they're in a wheelchair. So they get processed through there. 
Um, as I said, we tried to um, make it accommodating as much as possible that during that six weeks, they're separated from the general population. And those are general population uh, is referred to the, the prisoners that can walk around freely. They're not in administrative segregation or not in protection units. They're walking around freely, so they just have to lock up basically for counts or whatnot. But they're separated from them. Once they go through this six weeks, we call it quarantine, then they find out what prison that they're going to be assigned to. It that could be a Jackson prison right there. And they find out where they're going. Then we transfer them, um, if need to be, by transportation. And we have a transportation department that handles that. And they would be uh, assigned, as soon as they get to that prison that they're going to, they would meet with the classification director and the classification director would go over all what they need. Say if they need substance abuse counseling, if they need anger management, they'll go through all this list that RGNC listed what they need to do. Then they'll sign them up for programs and they'll find out what are you good at doing as far as work-wise? What do you want to work? It's not always guaranteed. Say if they like to cook. Well, we got a lot of kitchen jobs. So they would put them on the list. It's no guarantee again, but... For the most part, they'll get where they want to go in most jobs uh, once they just wait their turn and, and wait till a position comes open. Well, I just want to point out here, going back to the numbers for a second, that apparently um, Hollywood got it wrong because uh, based upon Shawshank Redemption, it was not a 100 to 1 ratio between prisoner and, and uh, correctional. It almost looked like it was a 1 to 1. Oh, but yeah. that, you're, you're saying that's incorrect. That's just incorrect. Be, just to be clear. Especially the scene where, um, I don't remember their names, but the, the captain came down. Remember those guys were singing at night? Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a big guy was, uh, they, they, you know, they, I guess they had a bet saying who would break first. Yes. And yes. he started saying, hey, I'm not... I'm, I'm, yeah, you know, I don't I'm belong here. Yeah, I don't belong here. And that captain gave him a rude awake. But it looks like they had staff everywhere on the bulkhead. No, that is a misconception. Like I gave you the numbers earlier, that's that's in the ideal world that you have that many staff members, but it doesn't really happen. Now, what we uh, when we do a cell rush, when we have to take someone out of the cell that's not being cooperative, then they kind of look like that. They we ha they have a team that they dress up that's specially trained. They would have five members dressed out in riot gear, just like you would see that police officers during their, that situation. They're special trained where you go in there. They have a shield first in case the person has a weapon. So you're the shields between you and that weapon. And uh, they would at times also have to place gas in there as well to try to get them to come out without, you know, going hands on. In defense of my favorite movie now, that was 1962. It was a different time. Yes, definitely. That's one of those movies that if I'm going through the, the guide, if it's on, I lost two hours. Yeah. Okay. Two hours of productivity is out. Actually, so, I have my students in my CJ class, corrections class, everyone's got to watch it. So I don't care how you find it. You might have a hard time finding it, but you have to watch that movie. The, the, that right talking. there is a class I would take in a second. Yep. <laughs> That's a homework assignment. I'm in. <laughs> At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy. Because you deserve more. 
But but I, I do want to talk. I want to get serious for just a second, if we could. Sure. Uh, and, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I want to talk to you about August thirteenth, nineteen ninety five. But I, I, I want to talk about that day specifically. I want to talk about uh, around 4 p.m., 4 p.m. that day. How would you have described uh, that shift around 4 o'clock that day? Okay, at that time, on that day, August 13th, 1995, I was working at the Gus Harrison Correctional Facility. And now, I don't know if you got, that's in Adrian, Michigan. It's at the bottom of our state, and it butts up, our county butts up to Ohio. That was a close security prison and a medium secure prison. So it was a dual. I was working in a close security prison. We had two units, housing unit four and housing unit five. I was assigned to housing unit five. The, to back up a little bit with security levels, as I was saying, back in the 90s, they were still working on opening up more maximum security prisons, but they cost a lot more to build. And it costs a lot to uh, staff them as well. So we had prisoners that were screened down from maximum security on paper to close security. So I would say if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say one third to half really should have been at maximum security prison. But however, that's what was going on back in the mid 90s. So um, just set it up um, as Mike asked about four o'clock. We started I worked the afternoon shift. So I worked 1400 hours to 2200 hours. That's two to 10 p.m. And when I got on the unit, we go through our checks, we check our equipment, we, we go back, we make sure that all the prisoners are supposed to be where they're at. We do a soft count, send it up to control center. So then we let them out. Um, when we come on duty, they're just coming back from yard. So four o'clock is just a routine. There's a lot of movement going on at that time of day. Um, I never, it was just a routine day. It was a nice sunny day that day. We just saw as another day going to happen at on that day, August thirteenth. So, so we're we're about eleven years into the career, and so it, it based upon your training experience, things are are kind of just they're normal, right? Until about around the time when they were coming back from yard, and that would be more seven forty five ish till eight eight p.m. in the afternoon when they come back from yard. Quite a bit of them especially in the summer, it's nice, right? In the summer, they want to get out of their cells. They, we have a big yard that's, of course, fenced in, and they can go out there, move around, walk around, see people on other units, and just hang out without being on the housing units. Well, anyways, they were coming back from yard. They blew the whistle. So they started coming back from yard. However, instead of going down to their cells to be let in, we could key them in or we could use it. We had an officer station that contained electronic locks. So we could do both. We could key them in with a key or we could turn a button to let them into their cell. So um, when again, when they started coming back, we noticed that they were congregating by the officer station. And what I'm talking about, we they were double bumped in 95. So we had 160 prisoners in housing at five. And we had four officers and one sergeant because, again, we were close security. So when they started coming back and not locking up right away, I told my partner that I was working with, man, this doesn't look good. So we tried to go around, start telling them, hey, you need to take it in before we started getting too excited. And we didn't go to administer direct orders. Direct order is if I give you a valid order, the prisoner has to follow it. However, we knew that that would maybe – 
intensify the situation. So we just tried to work with them. Hey, can you lock up? Can you go with me down here? But it wasn't working. Nobody was locking up when they came back from the yard. To give a number, again, we had 160 prisoners. I believe there was probably at least 100 out for that yard period. And the other 60 prisoners or 50 prisoners were um, locked up in their cells. And, and so you, you get this to uh, where they're, they're refusing to lock up, which I assume is the normal way. Uh, locking up is what they normally do when they come back in. And, and so you ask them to go back in and they don't do it. What happens next? Okay, we started giving the official direct orders a lockup. And then we started, we had a camera behind the officer station. So the cameras are all constantly recorded. So now we know, we're hoping Control Center can see what's going on. Mind you, there's cameras all over the prison system. So there's cameras. Um, again, they're not someone just assigned to watch housing unit five. So I'm thinking, wow, I hope somebody's seeing this. Um, however, we didn't hear nothing on the radio. And so they're refusing to lock up. Things started getting uglier. Now there was about 10 people. Remember I said about 50 stayed back. Well, if they don't go to chow, some of them are kind of scared to go to chow. So we allowed them. We allow those to, we, you know, we call it cooking up. They cook up their own food in the, in the day rooms. The day rooms are locked and we have a microwave in there. So what they do is they cook up soup, like ramen noodles, stuff like that. And those 10 prisoners were locked in there. But however, um, that's where the riot uh, starting point happened. How did you know that it had kicked off? Besides them not locking up, what, what, what were the, the actions that, that let you know that things have, have intensified significantly? Okay, in that day room where there was approximately 10 prisoners, one of the prisoners faked a medical condition, like he's having a heart attack or couldn't breathe. So the sergeant opened up the door, and that was just a deploy to open the door. So all those 10 prisoners bum-rushed the door, pushed it open, and then all the rest of the 100 prisoners behind us, were where they were actually on the rock by the officer station, all joined in in a mad on a fight for your life, basically. It was just a mad. Everything was going so fast, and then we just lost control of the unit just like that. As soon as the doors opened and they rushed it, we got rushed from those 10, and then we got rushed from the 100 that was on the bulkhead getting that refused to lock up. And where were you during this? I was right at the officer station. Um, it was me and another part. My other partner was at the officer station at that time. And uh, we were getting attacked from everywhere. No officer was safe at that time. Anyone that wore a uniform was targeted. It was just um, chaotic. Uh, it seemed like it lasted forever when we was in that incident. Then we had officers that were seriously injured where they were on, they got, uh, for one reason or another, either knocked on the ground, fell on the ground, and then the pile started piling up. There'd be 10 or 15 prisoners on one prisoner just beating, beating uh, them down. I started walking around, I started going around the piles and helping, pulling people off while I was getting assaulted myself. And then what happened, it changed very quickly. Anything that they could grab, they started using that as weapons. I'm talking that microwave, that was coming at us. There was glass coming at us, there was rocks, there was mop ringers. Anything that they could get their hands on, they were trying to seriously assault us, if not kill us. So you're trying to pull people off. What happened next? Uh, did the cavalry come then, or were you still on your own? Well, in the prison, we never, we're always outnumbered, right? So when we when they found out what was going on over the radio, they sent all the help that they could. Now, they can't send all the staff in there. you got to man the other assignments. 
So for a present standpoint, we had 21 staff members all fighting at that time that, that came in that were helping us before it started. So 21 against, I would say, maybe 110. Uh, that's good numbers in a prison, believe it or not. It don't sound like it, but that's good numbers. We were holding our own. Everybody uh, was holding their own as much as they could, but people were lo losing teeth. I mean, some people were getting knocked unconscious. It was where now, man, it's getting to the danger point now. We had uh, three sergeants in the block. We only had uh, one lieutenant on duty at that time, and he could not leave the control center. He, somebody has to, a lieutenant or higher, always has to be in charge of the prison. If he would have came down to it, now who's in charge of the prison? So he, he had to stay up in control center. So uh, you got 21 people involved. Uh, how, how did this event continue to, to, to evolve? Did, did, all, did all of a sudden they decide, hey, you know what, we'll go lock up now? No, that, <laughs> we're, we're no, good. no, that's not the case. What they did was they started jumping over to officer station and they started opening up the electronic doors. So the 50 or so that was locked in, they were letting them out. Okay. So the, the numbers get worse. The numbers get worse. And in Michigan Department of Corrections, they have reasons where you can use deadly force. They've already met three of those. They're unlocking their prisoners. They're hurting staff to the point where they could be seriously injured or killed. And they were destroying state property. So we already got three reasons where we could use deadly force. However, we don't have any weapons in, uh, inside the housing units. So what happened was the fights continued. We were trying to just quell it best we could. And then Sergeant made the call. And I'll never forget this. I looked over to my right as, every, again, everybody's getting assaulted. She got hit so hard, she slid on the ground, I would say 20 feet on her butt and, and came against the door um, of one of the counselor's offices. And I remember her get up and yell, everybody get the wounded and let's retreat. We were just fighting, but that them words of wisdom, we all heard it at the time. Whatever we were doing, we got together. And what we did was how we got out the, the serious injured was the ones that could walk, we got everybody in a big circle, okay? We got everybody in a circle and we're carrying people out that couldn't walk. And while we were all walking out, we were still being assaulted, of course, but we got out of the housing unit into the yard, the small yard that they had there. And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, here comes one sergeant with a shotgun. <laughs> he, lived in the, he lived in Adrian, so he was very close. He heard what was going on. So he came in sweatpants. He grabbed a shotgun and ran out there. But we said, dude, you cannot go in there with one shotgun. They're going to grab that from you and you're going to be, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out ugly. But... However, we were extremely lucky that no one passed away. Uh, no one died on that shift on that day. There were staff members that never came back to work. They, um, there were staff members that um, had serious uh, injuries after that. But I'm very proud to say that we didn't lose any life on that day. So after, the, after we left, we got you know everyone where they needed to go. And then here, now nobody's in the prison cell, right? So the prisoners got control of it. So the other units heard what was going on, and they ended up taking three units over out of five, out of the five housing units that we have on the inside. So it's a haul-out riot. They have to control three units. The other two units, I don't know how they took it, but we had enough staff um, that helped out to hold those two units down. So, again, this happened, again, at 8 o'clock at night. It went like this over overnight where those three units were 
um, ran by prisoners. They had control of it. And then what they did was they called Lansing and they brought down uh, multiple gun squads to the facility. People were on call for that and they're specially trained to deal with that type of situation. So we had probably a hundred extra staff that was brought in from other prisons that deal with that. So that's why it took to the next day to get back to housing units. And they had to use multiple, multiple gas, grenades, everything you can think of to get in there first. We wanted to, uh, we wanted to neutralize the prisoners before we went in there with weapons, but they, we got the um, units to, you know, taken back by staff pretty easy. They were done there. It was late. You know, they did, they went a whole nights without sleep. They did all their stuff that was happening in a prison setting. You can think about why staff's not there. So most of them were just ready to give up. They were laying on the ground. Of course, we're going in there with weapons, uh, you know, and uh, at that time, again, we, we, we have the right to use deadly force if, if needed. Did, did you ever dis- discover what, what the intent was for this, this, this thing, or was it just target of opportunity? No, that's a good point. We think moving back in that unit, we had all the higher ups gang member leaders in that unit. We had the head of the Melanix, that's a group um, for in a prison setting. We had the head of the Morris Science Temple. We had the head of the Aryan Nation. So we have all these three groups and maybe more. We have the leaders in this unit. So they're making all the decisions already, but now they're all glumped up in one unit. We think that was, they saw an opportunity and they took advantage of it. And come to find out, of course, like you see in movies, that we, they gave us a demand, uh, you know, a list of demands. And is this pretty, you know, your typical stuff, better food, uh, better conditions, you know, they, they weren't air conditioned units. So they said, you know, we want them air conditioned, stuff like that. It wasn't nothing like, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have corrupt staff, we got this or that. It was basically the, you know, the normal stuff that they would ask for you would think in a prison setting. I don't know how, I mean, However tough you are, being in an abnormal situation like that and then coming back to your normal life, that's got to play at odds with you mentally. Is there something set up to where uh, the officers have a chance to talk through that or figure some things out? Because that's got to weigh on you mentally pretty hard. It does. But typically, just like um, other law enforcement careers, we think we're tough. We think we can handle it. Uh, We're we're, we you know, we don't want to go talk to a shrink. You know, we're, we're, we're tough, man. That's what we're made for. Yeah. But down deep, I can tell you after being retired since 2019, um, I still have nightmares about things that happen in prison. I can tell you that for a fact that, you know, a few times a week, it seems like I don't even think about it. I'm retired. I'm just collecting a check. But however, those things in the back of your head for one re- you know reason or not, you know, thing for me, I'm tricked in a, an environment where I can't get out just like the riot. I couldn't get out. You know, I'm, when they're with it and whatever happens happens um so they do have um employee services um if you want to talk to people that's trained for that to talk to and i highly recommend if that's one thing i can say today i highly recommend that that staff do take advantage of those resources that are available to talk to somebody for me myself i never did take advantage of that and i wish i would have i wish i would have took advantage of that service again they have people that's trained for that that you can talk, maybe you have a lot on your chest and you're just hanging on to it. You know, they always say corrections has the highest rate, correction always has the highest rates of uh, divorce, uh, drinking, I mean, all kinds of stuff, because 
if you're holding it in, you know, that stuff's just going to build up. You have to have some type of release. What helped me too was um, a group of us would like go to gyms after work and we would take out our frustrations that way. Uh, we had competitions and it worked out good. We had facilities right on site that we could go to after work. And that seemed, I, it, for me, it helped me decompress. We have this physical danger that, that you just faced, but that's not the only danger that there is for correctional officers uh, in that environment. Uh, because you, you mentioned it earlier, uh, some of the training that, that you receive. Tell me about the inmate as a manipulator. Okay. What is it that, that the inmates try to do, and what's the ultimate goal? Well, we're Department of Corrections, in my opinion. I, I, I knew where they were going, but they assigned us badges when we started. If you were a brand-new correction officer out of training, you had a red badge. If you got through the training academy successfully, you would graduate to a green badge. And then if you successfully got off your probation, which was a year, you would go to a black badge. So you would stay with your black badge. So right off the bat, even the prisoners, you know, they can spot new officers, but I mean, all they have to do is look at a tag. So that's when they went to work. Soon as they uh, went to work, they would start trying to manipulate them. Hey, really, can you bring me in this? Can you break rules? Can you look the other way Why I, I break this minor infraction? What they're doing is they're working at its anatomy of a setup. They're just doing the smaller things first in most cases to see how far they could go with you. And in some cases, um, that's where you read about the negativity and Department of Corrections, just not in Michigan all around, that staff get complacent, they get too close to prisoners, and then they let their guard down. And the next thing they know, um, they could help them escape, they could have sexual relationships with them, they can bring them in drugs, they can bring them in cell phones. And then we'll go back to your training. You, you know, you're taught it early at the very day one in train academy, anatomy for setup. You have to always know what's going on around you. And if you have questions, you ask the staff members that's have time on the, on the unit or wherever you're assigned to. You and I have talked before and, and we, we've kind of described it as uh, the movie Groundhog Day. <laughs> you get an inmate in there and they'll try a ploy with a correctional officer and it doesn't work. Oh, you know what, though? It's not a failure. I just know what doesn't work. So the next day I try something else and, and I'm getting better. What amazes me, Bob, is that these these correctional officers that are compromised will actually assist the inmate in bringing items in that could eventually cause harm to that very same correctional officer. Absolutely. And it just it just shows how powerful the manipulation can be in that environment. And these people often have months or even years to work on that craft. For instance, back in the 80s and uh, mid 80s, when I started, there was someone bringing in switchblade knives with yellow handles. They were all the same. So I'm sure they got paid a pretty penny. The knife and you got um, in the corrections world know that inmates can sharpen anything. It don't have to be metal. It can be plastic, anything that will penetrate the skin or slash you, stab. So they can make weapons out of about anything. But for a staff member to bring it in purposely, that staff member could be stabbed, killed with that weapon. It just, I don't understand their mentality. It does not come into training. It's just they, they're set, they're trying to make it easy, but basically. Well, and then it, it, we, we just had a recent incident in the past few months down in Alabama where there was the correctional supervisor who became involved in a relationship and then literally physically 
helped him escape. Sure. And I just look at that and I'm like, what? Right. It doesn't happen overnight. I don't know the case specifically. I didn't read the documents on it, but it's going to come out if it hasn't already on the investigation that they're going to go back and look at security cameras. There was stuff going on that nobody that's, you know, that's happened behind the scenes. But if you look at security cameras, talk to witnesses, it's going to come out that they were uh, around each other a lot uh, when they shouldn't have been. Um, and it happens. You know, I've seen it in my, and during my career. I would see people that, okay, that's enough. You, you're done talking. Why are you still at this cell? It doesn't look good, male or female. Uh, you go ahead and tell them what you need to do, and then you you know go about your business. You give them a time. I'm going to come back on my next round. I want to make sure it's done. Uh, there's nothing wrong with talking about them, but you always got to put yourself in a safe position and uh, in a professional position. You know, t- treating people as people is one thing. Uh, but entering into a relationship with them is, is something completely different. And, and it's a fine line you guys have to walk because you, you need to develop that rapport because that's where you can get information and intelligence on something that may be being planned right now that could cause danger to you. But if you cross that very fine line, now you're part of the problem. Absolutely. And that's, that's a, you know, you know, a great way of saying it. You have to, again, have that rapport with them because you want to, you want them to respect you and you want them when you give them orders that they're going to follow them because they say, you know, um, Officer Greenwood's legit. He doesn't tell us anything that, uh, you know, is out of the order. He's not telling us everybody, okay, uh, you know, this isn't right. Everything makes sense. It's by the housing unit rules or it's by the prison rules. Um, however, what happens is it starts off where maybe you just let somebody get away with something small, a minor infraction, we call it. And then it might move up to a major infraction where you're letting them get away with and the person's saying, okay, I got away with two instances. Let me try something else. You know, let me pinch the, this person on the buttocks or something. Oh, they didn't report it. They didn't, you know, give me a sexual misconduct. And now the pro board's read about it. So it just keeps saying that person put themselves in a bad position. They should have squashed it at the very get go. Hey, um, I'm right by the book. If you, if you, uh, I'll talk to you if needed, but in most cases, um, I'm going to have to write you a misconduct report. It's unbelievable to me. Uh, but as we're getting to the end of the episode here, I tell you what, Bob, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I'll be honest with you. Uh, and you and I, we've talked quite a bit. I'm not sure I could do that job. I, I'm not sure that, that, that I'm cut out for it, but I am appreciative of the fact that people like you are willing to do the job because it's a necessary job. So thank you so much for your service and thank you for what you're doing right now to prepare that next generation of law enforcement professional uh, in your, your work there at Madonna. Again, like I um, let off, I really appreciate what the, the men and women do in our, in our prison system or county jails. They have a heck of a job to do. And for the most part, they all do it professional. We, it's a, it's a people behind the scenes. We never hear what happened unless it's something negative in the media. Every day they're going to work doing what they're supposed to do for the most part. And they don't, you know, again, we don't get any, uh, you know, whistles and bells or we don't have any big parties or, or you don't see us in front of the media talking. Wow, what happened today? Officer Greenwood at the prison. Um, so, again, they're silent. I would call the silent officers and the criminal justice, but they have a very important job to do, as you said, Mike. You know what, Brent? I continue to be amazed at the bravery and the courage and the dedication of the people in our first responder section, man. It's like you're walking into hell every day and 
it's 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 it becomes normal and it's just something part of your life and i i'm sitting here listening to you and it's like it's such an abnormal situation that you're trying to make normal because you're trying to make a living absolutely yeah you got to make the best and you got to have some kind of you know you have to be able to relieve that stress somehow because if you let it build up it's just going to be a beast it's going to catch up with you so that's the big thing too out there just make sure you get some way to decompress after each shift or whatever i mean whatever you can find I would highly recommend to get your mind off it. I used to tell my family and my, you know, people that want to hear interesting stories. I'm not talking about work. You know, that that's the way I did. I didn't want to bring it, keep bringing it back up, even though now I can do it. I'm retired. I moved away from it. But that's just the way I handle it when I was working. I didn't want to talk about work. I left my work at there and it seemed to be a good combination um, for me. Uh, I tell you what, Brent, uh, th- th- this episode didn't disappoint me. I, I mean, getting a look inside that world, I, I just can't imagine what it's got to be like. Yeah, it's fascinating. I could sit here and probably listen to him uh, talk about the profession for a couple more hours and ask questions because it's all very interesting to me. But I know we're limited on time. We're hoping to have him back and, and maybe ex- expand on this conversation a little bit. I uh, hope we can do that sometime soon. If you guys would like to go back and listen to some of the other episodes that we have, you can listen to uh, Bob's colleague, Vic. He was on uh, one of our episodes not too long ago, and it's all there right there on our website at uh, between the lines with virtual academy.com fantastic insight and discussion today and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime all right thank you for having me